welcome to Immigration Review, your weekly source for immigration case law updates and insights. I'm your host, Kevin A. Gregg, back again to review the week's presidential immigration cases, rummaging through the decisions so you don't have to. This podcast is sponsored by Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, also known as KKTP, a law firm where I'm also a partner. Whether you are facing an immigration obstacle, a serious injury, or a legal issue in your business, KKTP will aggressively protect your best interests. This podcast is also sponsored by DocketWise, an all-in-one immigration forms and case management solution trusted by thousands of immigration lawyers across the U.S. I really like DocketWise. It makes immigration applications easy by allowing the clients to provide information through simple online questionnaires that are shareable by text or email and available in multiple languages. Not only that, DocketWise provides a comprehensive group of case management features, including invoicing and calendaring, secure messaging, task management, and a lot more. You can learn all about DocketWise and receive a 10% discount on your subscription by heading to docketwise.com immigration review so they know we sent you. And as always, this show does not constitute legal advice and has no bias other than to keep you up to date and to enable you, my dear colleagues, to excel in court. So, without further ado, let's start the review. Wait till you hear the five cases we got this week. They definitely got me going. Lots of complicated criminal analyses with some impactful asylum and quote bombs. Join me, won't you? First up is Jathersan v. U.S. Attorney General, published by the 11th Circuit on November 17th, 2021. This is an impactful decision about asylum and related relief from Sri Lanka, an issue that the 11th Circuit seems to be giving a lot of attention of late. Mr. Jathersan is from Sri Lanka, entered the United States without authorization in 2018, was caught, and was found to have a credible fear of persecution. He applied for asylum and related relief, once placed in removal proceedings, shortly thereafter. As so often discussed, asylum and withholding of removal under the INA require that the persecution feared be on account of one of the five statutory protected grounds race, religion, nationality, political opinion, or the ever amorphous membership in a particular social group. Here, Mr. Jathersan based his fear on his Tamil race, his imputed political opinion as a supporter of the Liberation Tigers of Tamil Elam or LTTE, his imputed membership in the LTTE, and I guess playing to the future, his status as a Tamil failed asylum seeker. Just a bit of a background from the case itself, quote, The LTTE was a Tamil separatist group in Sri Lanka that fought against the Sinhalese-dominated government in a decades-long civil war. The LTTE sought to create an independent state for the Tamil minority in Sri Lanka. Although the LTTE officially lost the war in 2009, civil unrest continues in Sri Lanka, end quote and Tamils are still targeted by the Sri Lankan government and paramilitary forces that it has ties to, known as the Elam People's Democratic Party, or EPDP. Mr. Jathersan testified that he was indeed extorted and beaten by the EPDP on one occasion, and that he was abducted and detained for three days and beaten by the EPDP. He claimed that the police did nothing when he reported this, and that additionally, the Sri Lankan army itself had harassed him. 
The IJ and the BIA denied these claims, but the 11th Circuit reversed and remanded in part, get this, on the failed asylum seeker stuff. See, according to Mr. Jathersan, quote, because he lacks a passport, government forces in Sri Lanka would know that he sought asylum elsewhere. He testified that the EPDP and Sri Lankan army would know that he would have said bad things about the situation in Sri Lanka and would seek retribution against him. Returned asylum seekers, Jathersan contends, are perceived as LTTE supporters, end quote. And the 11th Circuit kind of agreed, or at least found that claim supported in the record. Evidence that the 11th Circuit describes in this decision, and which can be relied upon in other Sri Lankan asylum claims elsewhere. What a case. The 11th Circuit sent the matter back because it appears that the IJ did not consider whether Mr. Jathersan would suffer future persecution on account of his Tamil failed asylum seeker particular social group. And not only that, it seems like in Sri Lanka, there may be a pattern or practice of persecution against all such failed asylum seekers, meaning that Mr. Jathersan did not show an individual risk of harm. Put another way, the 11th Circuit is holding that there might be a pattern or practice of persecution against failed asylum seekers in Sri Lanka. If so, that's a big deal. And it might be the case in other countries too, if, like here, you can find the supporting credible news reports of harm against failed asylum seekers after they're removed. What a case. Great footnote on issue exhaustion too, by the way. That being said, the 11th Circuit affirmed the rest of what the IJ and the BIA actually reviewed and held. The court agreed that Mr. Jathersan, for example, had not shown that he had been harmed in the past on account of a protected ground, but rather that it appears that the EPDP harmed him for financial gain, a purely criminal motive that the court believed did not satisfy asylum law. But again, the 11th Circuit still sent it back for further analysis on the future persecution and torture that Mr. Jathersan reasonably fears, meaning that Mr. Jathersan gets another chance to make his claim in a big way. What a case for Sri Lankan Tamils. And I've got more. I know that there are a fair amount of listeners who practice in the 11th Circuit, so listen up. Here, as with so many successful asylum and convention against torture-based petitions for review, the court relies on its 2019 decision in Ali v. Attorney General of the U.S., whereby practitioners can get around the 11th Circuit's normally very deferential standard of review by showing that the BIA has failed to, quote, extend reasoned consideration to the petitioner's claims, end quote. And that's because if there hasn't been reasoned consideration of the claims or evidence in the first place, standards of review are kind of irrelevant, and remand is required. How do you show that there's been a failure of reasoned consideration? Well, quote, some indications include when the BIA misstates the contents of the record, fails to adequately explain its rejection of logical conclusions, or provides justifications for its decision which are unreasonable and which do not respond to any arguments in the record, end quote. Here, quote, the BIA misstated the record in this case when it wrote that the immigration judge made a finding concerning Jathersan's status as a Tamil failed asylum seeker, end quote. The IJ had never made the finding, thereby meaning that the BIA failed the reasoned consideration standard and the 11th Circuit was required to remand. Remember it. And finally, just to have a little fun with the case because there is a win for non-citizens. If on remand, Mr. Jathersan is deemed to have a well-founded fear based on his status as a failed asylum seeker, thereby qualifying him for asylum, will that automatically mean that DHS will have met its burden to establish a fundamental change in conditions such that Mr. Jathersan no longer has a well-founded fear? 
After all, he'll no longer be a failed asylum seeker then. But if so, that would then make Mr. Jatherson a failed asylum seeker again, and we're back to square one in an endless cycle of immigration analysis. Author Joseph Heller would be proud. And that is Jatherson v. U.S. Attorney General. Next up is Matter of A. Valenzuela, published by the BIA. This case is about aggravated felony crimes of violence, and it's the BIA's second decision in the case. The first was in January 2019, BP, or before podcast, but now it's adjudicating the matter again because the Ninth Circuit remanded it. On remand, the BIA has again dismissed the appeal. Here's what's up. Mr. Valenzuela was admitted to the United States as a temporary visitor and seems to have overstayed. Four years later, he was convicted of carjacking in violation of Section 215A of the California Penal Code and was sentenced to five years imprisonment. An IJ found Mr. Valenzuela removable for being present in the U.S. in violation of the law under INA Section 237A1B, and additionally, as a non-citizen admitted to the U.S. but who has been convicted of an aggravated felony, here, a theft offense as defined at INA Section 101A43G. As an aggravated felony with a five-year sentence to imprisonment, Mr. Valenzuela became ineligible for all relief and protection, except Convention Against Torture Deferral of Removal. But Mr. Valenzuela apparently decided not to apply for that. He nevertheless appealed, and the BIA dismissed the appeal. The Ninth Circuit sent it back on Oil's motion, holding that the BIA needed to readdress the aggravated felony issue and any other relevant issues. Mr. Valenzuela asks the BIA now to send the case back to the IJ so he can apply for relief and protection from removal. But the BIA declined to do so. After all, said the BIA, Mr. Valenzuela is indisputably removable under INA Section 237A1B because he's present in violation of the law. So the issue to the BIA is simply whether Mr. Valenzuela has been convicted of an aggravated felony, which, as he does have a five-year imprisonment sentence, would make him ineligible for all relief and protection except cat deferral, which again, he apparently waived. And on remand, the BIA did not readdress whether the conviction is an aggravated felony theft offense under INA 101A43G, which Oil apparently had some doubts about but instead held that the conviction is categorically an aggravated felony crime of violence under INA Section 101A43F. Recall, the aggravated crime of violence definition is found at 18 U.S.C. Section 16A and B, but following Sessions v. DeMaia at the Supreme Court, only Section 16A remains. This is the Elements Clause, which we always discuss, and which is very similar to the Elements Clause used under the Armed Career Criminal Act, or ACCA. The categorical approach applies to this analysis, which means it of course gets very complicated, not least of which because the Ninth Circuit has issued a bunch of binding decisions and then abrogated those decisions on this very issue, that is, whether felony carjacking in California is an aggravated felony crime of violence. And the reason the Ninth Circuit keeps issuing all these decisions is because the crime of violence and categorical approach case law is constantly evolving in the Supreme Court, including last term on mens rea, and in 2019, in the Stockling decision. A decision that addressed the violent force required for a crime to be considered a crime of violence. 
In Stockling two years ago, the Supreme Court held that the violent force necessary to commit a violent felony under the ACCA, quote, includes the amount of force necessary to overcome a victim's resistance, end quote. Many courts, including the BIA, have applied that ACCA violent force requirement into the immigration crime of violence context. And here, after all the back and forth and abrogation of decisions at the Ninth Circuit, the BIA believes it's now writing on a relatively clean slate, controlled only by Supreme Court decisions, which have not directly addressed this California statute. And so, addressing the issue, the BIA held that the California carjacking statute, in all instances, requires violent force as defined by Stockling, and always, quote, against the person or property of another, end quote, as required by 18 U.S.C. Section 16A. Therefore, even though it is the case that the California carjacking crime can be committed by merely inducing, quote, fear of injury to property, end quote, and not to any person, it still satisfies the immigration crime of violence definition. And that's because the immigration crime of violence definition includes the use of force against property, not just persons, which the California crime also requires. Accordingly, consistent with Stockling, the California crime requires force sufficient to overcome the victim's resistance. So, because Mr. Valenzuela is removable for being in the United States in violation of the law, and because his conviction is an aggravated felony, and because he apparently waived the only potential protection available to him, that is, cat deferral, the BIA did not remand proceedings, and Mr. Valenzuela will be removed. Two more things. First, remember, as the BIA does in a footnote, that even with aggravated felonies, non-citizens remain potentially eligible to adjust to LPR status, because aggravated felonies don't make non-citizens inadmissible unless the aggravated felony also qualifies as an inadmissible offense, such as a CIMT. While carjacking is probably a CIMT, that's not always the case, and anyway, INA Section 212H waivers are generally available unless the non-citizen was admitted to the U.S. as an LPR and was then convicted of the aggravated felony. All of that gets complicated, but the point is, there's often a possibility. Not for Mr. Valenzuela, though, because it appears that he doesn't have a qualifying relative or an employer to petition for him in the first place. Finally, this case brings to mind an interesting argument from a case whose name escapes me. See here, DHS initially charged Mr. Valenzuela as removable for having been convicted of an aggravated felony crime of violence, but DHS expressly withdrew that charge in favor of the theft aggravated felony charge. In this decision, though, and without DHS amending the notice to appear, the BIA found the aggravated felony crime of violence allegation satisfied. I seem to recall a recent BIA or Ninth Circuit case that says the IJ and BIA can't do that when it comes to removability. That is, it can't replace one aggravated felony provision for a different aggravated felony provision and then find the non-citizen removable under the different aggravated felony provision unless DHS expressly amends the NTA. Although the BIA doesn't say so here, the BIA may believe it need not worry about that rule because, in this case, Mr. Valenzuela is removable for a different reason. It seems he overstayed his visa. And so the whole aggravated felony issue arises in the relief context rather than removability. DHS only needs one reason to remove an individual, and once that's satisfied, the non-citizen has the burden to establish relief eligibility, meaning that the non-citizen would need to overcome an aggravated felony allegation even if it's not expressly charged in the NTA. Probably what the BIA was thinking here. 
and that is Matter of A. Valenzuela. Next up, Di Cavallo v. Garland, published by the First Circuit on November 17, 2021. This decision is about drug trafficking and particularly serious crimes. Mr. Di Cavallo is a police officer from the country of Cape Verde. He became a conditional lawful permanent resident in 2012, almost surely through his marriage to a U.S. citizen or LPR, but in 2015, he was convicted of some crimes, including possession of oxycodone with intent to distribute, in violation of Mass General Law Chapter 94C, Section 32A, A. DHS alleged and an IJ found that this made Mr. DiCavarlo removable under INA Section 237A2A, triple I because the conviction matches the definition of a controlled substance aggravated felony, a complicated legal argument that Mr. DeCavarlo couldn't really challenge because he was representing himself, pro se. Mr. DeCavarlo applied for asylum and related relief from Cape Verde, but the IJ held, relying on Attorney General Ashcroft's decision in matter of YL 20 years ago, that such a drug trafficking crime was a per se particularly serious crime that made Mr. DeCavarlo only potentially eligible for a deferral of removal under the Convention Against Torture, and nothing else. The IJ denied that protection on the merits and the BIA affirmed. Mr. DeCavarlo received excellent pro bono counsel on the petition for review to the First Circuit, and the First Circuit remanded, at least on the particularly serious crime issue. So, particularly serious crimes. Aggravated felonies are always particularly serious crimes that bar non-citizens from asylum, but to bar a non-citizen from withholding a removal under the INA and Convention Against Torture, the inquiry is a bit more nuanced. As we just discussed in that BIA case, an aggravated felony or aggravated felonies, where the non-citizen has spent at least five years in prison, will always be a particularly serious crime for withholding purposes under the statute. But if, as here, the non-citizen has not spent that much time in prison, BIA case law, namely matter of NAM, requires a three-part analysis of the crime to determine if, indeed, the conviction is particularly serious. However, in matter of YL, Attorney General Ashcroft instituted a very strong presumption that drug trafficking aggravated felonies will always be particularly serious crimes, even for withholding, no matter the imprisonment sentence, unless six difficult-to-satisfy elements exist. Here, Mr. DeCavarlo's attorneys attacked matter of YL head-on, arguing that the decision is invalid for two reasons. One. Counsel argued that rather than a presumption, Attorney General Ashcroft instituted a complete bar to withholding for drug trafficking crimes, as no one can find a single case in 20 years where the presumption was overcome. As Congress didn't write the statute to categorically bar such individuals from obtaining withholding of removal, so the argument goes, a presumption that is in effect doing that is unlawful. Second, counsel argued that actually, the statute itself limits withholding of removal-type particularly serious crimes to aggravated felonies with a sentence of five years or more of imprisonment, meaning, according to counsel, that the attorney general can't even create a presumption for crimes with less imprisonment. On the first point, Oyle didn't really argue otherwise. Oyle agreed that the Attorney General can't make all drug trafficking aggravated felonies particularly serious crimes for withholding purposes because Congress didn't do that with the statute. Instead, Oyle argued that the Attorney General merely instituted a presumption, as administrative law generally allows. With the issue teed up, the First Circuit left it for another day. It remanded, 
holding that because the parties agree that matter of YL isn't a categorical bar, the IJ erred in treating it as one, when the IJ failed to analyze whether Mr. DeCavarlo could meet the exception. On remand, the IJ and the BIA must conduct the required analysis, and if they so make a particularly serious crime again, the First Circuit will take up the lawfulness of matter of YL's very high presumption. The First Circuit also remanded for the BIA to determine, even under matter of YL, whether the language of the particularly serious crime statute additionally requires that a drug trafficking conviction makes an individual, quote, a danger to the community, end quote, based on the specific facts of a case. Interesting issues to be addressed on remand, but a bit of an unsatisfactory ending for podcast purposes. Addressing the IJ and the BIA's denial of cat deferral on the merits, the First Circuit affirmed. But there are some pretty smart arguments there, too. First, Mr. DeCavarlo's attorneys used matter of RAF as a bit of a sword, arguing that fine, if the BIA must now analyze cat elements de novo, as matter of RAF said, including when there's a cat grant by the IJ, the BIA must also analyze all of those elements de novo when there's a cat denial. And that's true, matter of RAF does now require de novo review of the cat elements rather than under the deferential standard of review that the BIA uses to usually review IJ decisions. But the First Circuit disagreed that matter of RAF includes all elements of a CAT analysis. Some parts of the CAT analysis, such as whether a person will likely be harmed in the future, are indeed factual findings that the BIA reviews for the deferential clear error standard. Other elements, such as whether the harm suffered rises to the legal definition of torture, are more legal questions that matter of RAF requires a de novo review of. And in this case, much of the IJ's denial turned on a belief that the individuals Mr. DeCavarlo feared wouldn't seek to harm him again, making it, according to the First Circuit, a factual finding that the BIA correctly viewed under the deferential clear error review. Then, reviewing the IJ and the BIA's cat protection findings, the First Circuit affirmed. Long case and pretty fact-specific, but to summarize, the record doesn't compel a conclusion that the criminals Mr. DeCavarlo arrested when he was a cop would seek to harm him now, or that the Cape Verde police or government would acquiesce to torture by these criminal enterprises, as the Convention Against Torture requires. But congratulations, Trina Realmoto and Tiffany Liu of the National Immigration Litigation Alliance and Jennifer Klein of the Committee for Public Counsel Services for the remand for petitioner. Again, long case, but let's get back to matter of YL and particularly serious crimes, an issue that always gets this podcaster all riled up. Pretty timely First Circuit decision, as the BIA has just issued an amicus calling requesting briefing on, quote, whether all aggravated felonies, per se, come within the ambit of particularly serious crimes, such that it is unnecessary to examine the elements of the relevant aggravated felony offense pursuant to the first step of matter of NAM, end quote. Put another way, I guess the BIA might be considering extending matter of YL to every single aggravated felony. Doesn't seem supported by the INA to me, but we shall see. On the opposite side of the spectrum, might matter of YL be on the ropes, notwithstanding the BIA's amicus? Attorney General Garland, of course, has the authority to disagree with Attorney General Ashcroft, and the First Circuit appears to believe such disagreement supported, stating that its remand, quote, will also provide the Attorney General with an opportunity to consider whether, based on the experience of two decades in Congress's increasingly nuanced view of drug trafficking offenses, Matter of YL may have turned out to overshoot the mark, end quote. 
Stay tuned. And that is DiCavarlo v. Garland. Moving on, we have Maradia v. Garland, published by the Fifth Circuit on November 17th, 2021. This case is about no-notice motions to reopen. Mr. Maradia is from India. He was ordered deported in absentia in 1996 because he did not show up for his hearing. As it was a 1996 hearing, that means that the pre-IRIRA framework governed, and that proceedings were initiated by the service of an order to show cause, or OSC, not a notice to appear, or NTA. The OSC lacked the date, time, and location of Mr. Maradia's first hearing, and 15 years later, in 2001, Mr. Maradia filed his first of two motions to reopen, alleging that he never received notice of that 1996 hearing in the mail at his address in the order to show cause. In that first motion, Mr. Maradia said that he had moved from that first address a month before his hearing notice was sent. But a failure to update one's address when they move isn't really a very strong argument for missing one's hearing. So that first motion was denied, and Mr. Maradia does not appear to have appealed that denial, at least to the Fifth Circuit. Mr. Maradia filed a second motion to reopen a few years later, arguing that actually, former INS got his address wrong in the OSC, which is totally a ground for reopening, and that additionally, the OSC failed to comply with the framework discussed by the Supreme Court in Pereira v. Sessions because the OSC lacked the date, time, and location of Mr. Maradia's first hearing. Nis Chavez did not exist at the time of Mr. Maradia's second motion, but if it had, it would also have supported that argument. But the Fifth Circuit rejected all of the arguments, just like the IJ and the BIA, before it. The Fifth Circuit's first rationale is a bit interesting. See, the statute and regulations only permit non-citizens to file one motion to reopen, and almost always within a set amount of days of the final order of removal. But if the non-citizen can establish that he did not receive notice of the hearing that he missed, there is no limit on the amount of motions he can file, nor is there a time limit. And that's the type of motion that Mr. Maradia is filing here. But here's the thing. The Fifth Circuit held that Mr. Maradia's first motion was denied based on a finding that he had failed to show that he had lacked notice, and he had never challenged that denial, making the finding final. So, According to the Fifth Circuit, the record currently has a non-reviewable finding that Mr. Maradia indeed received proper notice, meaning that the number and time limitations on motions to reopen do apply. It doesn't matter to the Fifth Circuit that Mr. Maradia is now arguing that he didn't receive notice for a different reason, with the second motion to reopen, because the Fifth Circuit believes that both motions turn on whether Mr. Maradia met his, quote, burden to inform the immigration court of the correct address, end quote. Accordingly, Mr. Maradia cannot bring his second no-notice motion to reopen. The Fifth Circuit then also addressed the Pereira issue. That is, whether the deficient order to show cause mandates reopening of the in absentia order of deportation. And recall, the Fifth Circuit appeared to hold that indeed, in absentia motions to reopen based on deficient NTAs must be reopened in Rodriguez v. Garland, discussed on episode 75 of the podcast. Does the same rule apply for deficient OSCs? Well, no. OSCs are the predecessor to NTAs used before IRIRA went into effect in 1997. That means that OSCs aren't governed by INA Section 239A, the immigration statute that defines what must be included in an NTA, and which has been so often discussed in the Pereira and Chavez type cases of late, because INA Section 239A did not exist before IRIRA. 
INA Section 239A lists the information that must be contained in NTAs. But NTAs aren't at issue in this case. OSCs are. And the old pre-IRIRA law had no comparable statute requiring that the date and location of initial hearings be in OSCs alone. That old statute also expressly allowed that such information be in other documents, such as a notice of hearing. Mr. Maradia therefore lost his petition for review. But I've got one more thought. Ray of light for some similar OSC claims? The Fifth Circuit rejected Mr. Maradia's Pereira and Nishava's tight motion to reopen arguments because Mr. Maradia's case, quote, began and ended before September 1996, end quote, when Congress passed IRIRA. So what about cases that began pre-September 1996, but resulted in an in absentia order post-IRIRA? Does INA Section 239A and Rodriguez v. Garland apply? Can't wait to find out. And that is Maradia v. Garland. Finally, we have Goulart v. Garland, published by the Ninth Circuit on November 18, 2021. This is a three-page majority decision on equitable tolling, authored by Judge Paez and concurred with, in nine pages, by Judge Van Dyke. District Court Judge Corman, sitting by designation, dissented substantially. Mr. Goulart was ordered removed, it appears, because an immigration judge found his burglary conviction to be an aggravated felony crime of violence under INA Section 101A43F, vis-a-vis 18 U.S.C. Section 16B. Mr. Goulart was not physically removed and, years later, the Ninth Circuit issued Demaya v. Lynch, finding Section 16B unconstitutional, which as we discussed this episode, the Supreme Court affirmed in Sessions v. Demaya on June 9, 2018. So, years later after being ordered removed, Mr. Goulart filed a motion to reconsider his removal order, arguing that now, based on the change in law, he had not been convicted of an aggravated felony. But motions to reconsider must be filed within 30 days of the removal order. Mr. Gallartz wasn't filed until July 16, 2018, five years after he was ordered removed. Now, in the Ninth Circuit, that 30 days can be equitably told, quote, when a petitioner is prevented from filing because of deception, fraud, or error, as long as the petitioner acts with due diligence in discovering the deception, fraud, or error, or based on a change in the law that invalidates the original basis for removal, end quote. And so actually, Mr. Gallart filed his motion pretty diligently after the Supreme Court's decision in Demaya, just a bit over a month later. However, the Ninth Circuit held here that Mr. Gallart failed to explain why he didn't file his motion sooner, because after all, the Ninth Circuit issued its Demaya decision in 2015. From the time the Ninth Circuit issued its decision in 2015, Section 16b was no longer constitutional in the Ninth Circuit, meaning that Mr. Goulart had caused to file his motion as early as 2015. He did not do so, and did not submit an affidavit or otherwise show that he was trying to diligently pursue his rights during the five years between his removal order and his eventual motion to reconsider. Really, if I may be so bold. All of this provides excellent reasons for practitioners to listen to the Immigration Review Podcast every week. Totally unbiased with that recommendation. So the Ninth Circuit affirmed denial of Mr. Gallart's motion to reconsider, relying heavily on its decision on equitable tolling in Lona v. Barr, discussed way back on Episode 3 of the podcast. Let's dive into some dissents, shall we? There's a lot going on. 
While I only skimmed it, it appears that the majority of Judge Van Dyke's concurrence is directed at Judge Corman's dissent. To quote from the decision's own summary, quote, Judge Van Dyke also wrote that one wonders, why would one champion charting a completely new and unsupported path of legal reasoning just to avoid the lawful removal of a convicted burglar? Judge Van Dyke wrote that in our system of government, that means respecting the laws passed by Congress, not bending them, including our nation's immigration laws. End quote. So, quote, responding to the question why he would champion the cause of a convicted burglar, Judge Corman pointed to the judicial oath, which was adopted in the Judiciary Act of 1789 and requires judges to administer justice without respect to persons and do equal right to the poor and to the rich. End quote. My oh my. If that wasn't enough, I leave you with another similar back and forth in a case published the same day as this one, this time between Judge Bumate and Judge Rawlinson. This is the final footnote from Judge Rawlinson's dissent in an environmental law decision, sent my way by my colleague and fellow Ninth Circuit watcher, Chris Rickards. Not my normal practice, of course, but it just seems a bit curious that Judge Bumate, appointed to the Ninth Circuit at around the same time as Judge Van Dyke, similarly targeted Judge Rawlinson in a concurrence that resulted in Judge Rawlinson responding with the following, which I shall quote in full. Quote, My concurring colleague chastises me for marking government employees with advancing environmental racism. For the record, I grew up in the segregated South and looked racism in the face, up close and personal, long before my concurring colleague was born. So pardon me if I take a hard pass on the lecture on when, where, and how to identify racial injustice. Indeed, if my compassion is owed in this case, it should be directed towards the people of San Bernardino County who are literally dying from being subjected to pollution on top of pollution. As for those involved in the preparation of this report who co-signed my colleague's accusation, I leave you with the wise words of my dearly departed Mama Louise. Only hit dogs, holler. End quote. Something is definitely going on in the Ninth Circuit. And that is Goulart v. Garland. So there you have it. You're all caught up with the past week's published immigration cases. I'm Kevin A. Gregg, a partner with the law firm Kurzban, Kurzban, Tetzeli, and Pratt, and this has been another episode of Immigration Review. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, please share it with a friend and rate and review us. Each review helps new listeners find the show. And of course, subscribe to Immigration Review wherever you get your podcasts. If you like what we do and want to become a patron of the show, please check out our Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash immigration review, or click on the link in the show notes. And if you're interested in an official immigration review CLE certificate for five credit hours, email me at kgreg at kktplaw.com with your full name and the episode numbers for the 10 shows you've listened to. Also, feel free to email me with questions, comments, or anything at all. And follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, at Immigration Review. And send us a tweet, at ImReview. That's I-M-M Review. I'll be back next Monday for a brand new discussion. Until then, I'm Kevin A. Gregg, bringing you the Immigration Review. Thank you.